Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm Iris Dement. I'm in Iowa City, Iowa. I'm attempting to make the world a better place. I'm trying to um, place myself in the human community a little bit better. And music has a, a knack for that, wouldn't you say? Welcome back to the show on the road, everybody. I am your sonic spelunker, Zach Lupiton. Thank you for diving through the caves and the mountain streams of sound with me. Uh, this week, as you're hearing, we talk to the amazing Iris Dement. And as she sings on How Long, which is featured on her new record, like Martin Luther King Jr. said in his 1963 March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I really did learn a lot talking to Iris, uh, and she's been releasing poetic protest albums since the early 90s, starting with her iconic 1992 John Prine-endorsed debut album, Infamous Angel, and her fiery, politically charged The Way I Should from 1996, which was nominated for a Grammy. She never holds back what she really thinks. After six pent-up years of working on her new record, Working on a World, it's finally here this week. And this time, she wants to honor the luminaries like Mahalia Jackson, John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., and even the chicks, a.k.a. the Dixie Chicks, who stood up and put their principles and lives on the line to help bend history towards progress and righteousness. Now, of course, Iris and many folk singers before her despair at the thought that music alone cannot move history in the right direction. What does it mean to be on the right side of history? If you have about six and a half minutes, stop what you're doing and listen to her seething protest song going down to sing in Texas. It's not just about gun control and about the tyranny that is sprouting all around us. It's really honoring the people who dare to speak out and put their reputation and their necks on the line. In Texas, they actually loosened gun laws to make it easier for anyone to have a gun in any place at any time, right after mass shootings in El Paso and Odessa took the lives of over 30 people. And while Iris has been confronting this lunacy in her songs for over 30 years, she chuckles at the thought that Many folks only know her as the playful duet partner of her longtime sonic soulmate, John Prine. In spite of ourselves, maybe one of the most fun-loving, dirty-mouth love songs of the 20th century. But I urge you to dive a little deeper with Iris. And we're going to dive real deep right now. Okay, here she is, Iris Dement. I feel like we've forgotten as music listeners and song consumers that protest music is a part of the American 
uh, discourse, something that is deeply ingrained in, I think, the bedrock of what American music is. I like how you put that. Mm -hmm. And this new record, uh, Working on a World, which comes out as we speak uh, next week. Very exciting. You know, you're diving into the stories of obviously Martin Luther King Jr., Mahalia Jackson, John Lewis, social justice warriors that had to push this huge rock up a endless hill. Do you feel like as a songwriter who's been working, you know, 30 plus years that you are also pushing a rock in, in a similar way or is it a totally different practice? Well, I feel like just to live to an extent um, something involves pushing a rock, you know, I mean, life, even the best of circumstances, you know, it requires a, a lot of us. So there's that to start with, but certainly, um, Gathering the will and the determination to make this record involved that for me because there was a period of time, you know, around, oh, started, I guess, late the year in 2016. Like so many people that, you know, were tuned in and yeah, I had to muster, dig down deep, muster up something to keep me going. And I poured all of that into these songs. And... The title track, you know, has this refrain that you know i don't have all the answers to the troubles of the day neither did all our ancestors and they persevered anyway right mm -hmm. um i think the hardest thing to recognize as fellow artists or something who are trying to bend the arc of progress the right way mm -hmm. is that there is this constant backslide there's two steps forward one huge step back mm -hmm. record came out in 92 but uh in 96 i think it was around the bush era yes i put out a album that had some political songs wasteland of the free and there's a wall in washington and yeah <laughs> that's when um that turn was taken i mean not saying that uh it doesn't take well i am saying that it does take some courage to be openly political as a a songwriter who's trying to sell music. I mean, you had those records on more or less major labels, you know, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Was there pushback when you tried to be openly political in your songs that early? No, um, I had surprisingly little, if any, pushback um, in the years of my record making, even with, um, I mean, for the last few records, I've put my records out on my own label. But prior to that, as you said, I was on Rounder and the Warner Brothers. And um, it's not what you would expect, but I had a team of people around me that totally supported me in doing what I wanted to do. And I had made that clear when I went with them and they they abided by their commitment. All those people are fired. <laughs> I don't think yeah. them God rest him. are there anymore. <laughs> The rest of them left. They, I think, they saw the writing on the wall and left. But and then, you know, I got out of there. But um, no, I I'm fortunate that I could say that that never got in my way, um, or maybe not fortunate. I don't know. But I I wrote the songs I wanted to write, and I put out, you know, records the way that I wanted them to be. And could you imagine the way I should that record released in '96? having a song like Wasteland of the Free coming out on some sort of major label now. I I, I can't imagine it, you know. Are there any major labels? I don't even, <laughs> I am so out of the label. That was an honest question. I really don't know. I, I just oh, yeah. don't pay attention. There are a few, okay. Um, yeah, you know, what is odd. You might be right about that. I mean, certainly it wouldn't come out on any major like, um you know pop or country records but how odd it is though that at the same time these major labels are more than willing to put out records that say horrific things about women i mean really violent but you're probably right in that song i mean you probably start right coming after them uh you know we got politicians running races on corporate cash 
Right in the opening lines of that song, Wasteland of Three, we're talking about these preachers, you know, that saying they are Christ's disciples, they don't look like Jesus to me. They're living in the wasteland of the free, you know, and they're talking about about corporate cash in church. I mean, right, again, but I don't see Carrie Underwood. Oh, no. People who are on American Idol as the new face of country, right? Uh, they're not talking about preachers stealing people's monies, dealing in these dark politics. It's unfortunate because I think a lot of country music actually started as protest music. Well, I mean, it's not just the record industry, it's the entire country. It's all been driven now towards profit and profit for the very few. And ever, it seems to me, uh, what decisions are left that aren't made on that basis? You know, whether it's art or cars or you, you name it, <laughs> the list is so long. Journalism, you know, the damage from that is incalculable. Court-controlled media outlets, you're correct. They're not going to be um, playing songs like this. We put these little kids behind prison doors. We call ourselves the Well, you grew up in Arkansas, one of... No, I, I grew up in California. I was born in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. That's my true. family yes. went to California when I was very little, yeah. Youngest of 14, is that right? I am. Mm-hmm. Which creates its own drama, I'm sure, growing up. Um, but the Pentecostal uh, upbringing you had informs your work to this day. Um There is a fascination, I think, with this figure as both social justice warrior and token of deceit that can be used by people in power. Yeah, you get into another highly troubling er area. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think um, if you were to ask me what I'm most concerned about today, maybe next to global warming, are, uh, you know, white evangelicals. Um, we could call them white nationalists, but I think base and that would be accurate. But basically what they've been up to is the same today is what they've been up to for a really long time. They've just consolidated power and become really scary. Um, those folks keep me up at night and having come out of that world, I, um, (laughs) they're running a lot. They're running the state I live in, you know? Or they gave us the last president. Um, it's the fascist party now, and it's pretty terrifying the level of power they have achieved. Um, so I want to be clear that I I came out of that world, but I left probably ninety percent of it behind. I'm very uh, I admire the teaching. I admire what we know of Jesus. I think he got placed in the wrong book. And I expect any day now the evangelicals will say as much because they're not very interested in that guy. He's a problem for them. <laughs> if you notice that, they very, very rarely mention him anymore. He's a major complication, you know, a, a, a hitch in their agenda. But um, he, you know, like so many other wise <laughs> prophets of our time, you know, um, in my opinion, was on to a pretty good thing. and. I try to carry that through in my music. The other thing that I haven't let go of is, I don't know if I can even put words on it really, but there was something that I learned about in those churches. There was something, I just call it the spirit. And I don't, I don't feel the need to try to explain that. I don't think that's contained in anybody's religion. You can be an atheist and feel this thing. I think of a spirit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with but I was, and I give my parents a lot of credit for this. They were good, decent folks that were there for, I mean, to avoid talking about this all day, basically the right reasons. 
And I, I at a young age could pick up on that element of it. Um, that soul, that soulful thing that mm-hmm. humans need to connect to. And I felt that when I was very tiny and I, I, when you say me maintaining my connection to that, I don't know how, what you're saying, but for me, it's that I'm mm-hmm. trying to carry that into the world minus the BS. And that's only grown. Well, the song, let me be your Jesus on the new record, which, uh, you know, you wrote with your husband, Greg Brown, there's, there's this sort of sword of irony poking us. Don't believe what you hear. Don't believe what you see. Just listen to your savior, savior. Now only believe in me, right? Like anyone strong arming you to only listen to one side can't really be a savior in a way. You know, I would even back to Jesus. I personally don't believe Jesus ever even said that. If you read, um, and you know, we don't need to talk all day about Jesus. There's lots of other guys that were interesting too. But uh I don't think that, you know, this whole, you know, no one gets to the father except through me. I I, I don't a lot of those words just don't jibe with, you know, the other things right. he said. And so I I just out how to go with that my husband wrote those lyrics i wrote the melody by the way but again uh as you know uh, there's a lot of folks like that i mean pretty much any fascist authoritarian mm-hmm. fellow and sadly they are always men so far could come close to fitting that it's the fascist leader um description let me be your jesus i lift you up I heard that the uh, the far right, I think prime minister of Italy, who's a lady right now, uh, believes that believes that the Lord of the Rings books are religious canon. You know, um, yeah, I had forgotten about her. Um, <laughs> you know, when you that touches on another thing. I mean, the the to be raised biblically is essentially to be primed for uh, conspiracy theories to be raised with the belief in the ark and you know the angel b- rolled the stone away and you know the virgin was impregnated by god etc 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 it goes on and on i mean i was taught stories about the man swallowed by the well who had an encounter of god popped out i was taught these stories as facts and um, even today, sometimes I feel myself, I'm still disentangling myself from that. Because when you are born and every grown up around you mm. is in support of, it's really, it's a lot to mm. part. Oh, where was I going? My point was that it's a perfect marriage, the evangelical Christian, whether you're in Italy or here, community with what's going on right now you're primed for conspiracy theories so yes whatever was you said the prime minister of italy's you know it's not any more out there than um jesus walked on water you know and the red sea was parted so yeah the trees started walking you know they're perfect companions and that's really what's so i've always kept my mouth relatively shut about people's religions because i thought well that's your faith you know Mm -hmm. You're free to your faith, but I've—I don't think we have that option anymore. I actually feel like it's my duty now to say out loud, these are myths, and they're really, really dangerous to us. To just look the other way while tens of thousands of people are managing managing their lives, you know, and their view of the world based on fiction—that's um, a serious problem. You know what I mean? You've seen it here. We're in agreement, I assume. <laughs> if not, let me talk some more. Yeah. Keep going. I think the vibe on this new record is one of uh, paying homage or giving thanks or sort of being thankful that you can be in a world where a Martin Luther King Jr., a Mahalia Jackson, even 
the chicks, also known as the Dixie Chicks back in the day, can exist among us, you know, and to put their necks on the line. And, you know, you're epic going down to sing in Texas, um, which feels like would fit right on one of the new Bob Dylan records, you know, just going for it. But like, you know, sort of paying homage to these people, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, like those guys. Oh, yeah. If they would have stuck up for what they believed in in Texas and did, did. Yeah. Many times. Who, who would have cared except that the chicks did it and then yeah. they get blackballed out of the industry for what, a decade almost, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. it's, it's striking. Um, and you know, you've played in Texas for 30 years. Um, obviously you, you talked about the, the open carry law that got passed on there and yeah, it's like you see shootings and these things happen in music venues and churches and public squares all over the world. How are we to feel safe as people who don't agree with those policies? Um, when, you know, people can just walk in with guns on their hip at your show. Yeah, it's over. And that's what that song came out of in that tiny room, by the way, of a seat's about 100, 150. There's there's no getting out, you know. (laughs) People are closer to me on that stage because I am to you, you know, two feet away tops. Yeah, it was very sobering. Um, There is no feeling safe. And it's uh, no accident that there is no feeling safe. I'm going down to sing in Texas. Anybody can carry a gun But we will all be so much safer there The biggest lie under the sun Go ahead and shoot me if it floats your little boat But I'll live by my conscience even if that's all she wrote I'm going down to sing in Texas For anybody The people who come to see you at the Cactus Cafe in, in, in Austin, right? Mostly probably preaching to the choir, but are there times where you feel like someone has spoken up to you or heckled you or or, or, or felt the need to disagree with you in a public way that made you uncomfortable? Well, I, I've always had, I mean, pretty much from the day that I start, that I put out, um, you know, the way I should and started playing some of those songs li- live, absolutely, I would have people that would you know, boo or sit down or I invariably somebody would leave during that song or, you know, um, and I got a lot of hate mail, but that was pre social media world and pre uh, Donald Trump and, you know, pre having leadership directing people towards violence and hostility. Mm. So we're in a whole different, it's a totally different ball game right now. So it would have never entered my mind that the level of danger that exists now for all of us, and as you said earlier, myself just as a folk singer, you know, a little club could face just by saying things uh, to speak out of conscience, you know, speak from a place of conscience. You know, you would uh, walk in the streets and confront you know, you'd cross the Selma Bridge for something like that, you know? Right. Uh, and now it's crossed over to a whole different level. But yeah, that song for me was um, my decision to, I, I just have to make that commitment. It's not an option to, uh, I just owe too much to the people that came before me and the people coming after me to just to go hide out. So to the best of my ability, I, I'll keep saying what I feel I need to say and things will go as they go, you know. What's the deal with all these war criminals who get to walk around free? There's that verse in going down to sing Texas. Um, I know I'm just a pilgrim. I'm only passing through. It's a choice I'm making, trying to be true. I 
Don't know if there's a judgment day or a master plan, but I want to be ready if before the Lord I stand. I think the idea of being this uh, pilgrim, I mean, it's sort of the foundational myth of this country, right? Like these people who came to stand up for something they believe in, right? Except that those people then oppressed other people, you know? And then like, then people fought against that thing. And then those people came in power. And, you know, it's like this, again, the swinging back and forth of, you know, the Puritans or whatever who felt this righteous need to have freedom in this country. And then slave owners writing the Declaration of Independence. You know, there's this foundational irony in in this country, you know, right to the root. Yeah. We kind of have that everywhere. I, I pro- I'm sure if I dug around much, I'd find some foundational irony within myself that I'm not aware of and don't want to know about. <laughs> but you're right. Um, but the thing that I, I think um, it's important to remember if you probably, you know, I'm not saying that you haven't, but I remind myself of when I get discouraged that things are such a mess and what I'm doing is just a drop in the bucket, which it is. I remember, you know, what's kept the whole thing from going all the way to crab. <laughs> going back to the Puritans and a thousand was that not everybody was doing that. There was always this percentage of folks that were countering that stuff. They mm-hmm. may not be written a rap about in large, you know, numbers in history, but those people have always been there and working on bending that arc. And so when I get discouraged, which is most hours of most days, <laughs> I remind myself of that, you know. We all of us have to stay in there pushing back however we can. And that's folks that have done that in the past. That's why you and I are here talking right now, right? right. We're free to do this right now. It's not an accident. It's because some folks stood up and didn't go, you know, hide off in the corner. That's our job now. Not sure if the show on the road podcast would thrive in Russia right now, but you know, who knows? I feel like what you and John Prine, who obviously you worked with many times over your career, um, have given the world, I think, is the idea that I think the, the working people, the the people in small towns who come from humble beginnings have humanity and, and a power to them. That these stories matter, you know. Um, I mean, you, the first song supposedly you ever fully wrote, Our Town, is maybe your most beloved and listened to song right um does that feel strange all these years later that that song has had such a lasting uh, impact yeah you know you just yeah yeah i i I don't remember thinking past that moment really when i wrote that song but you said uh my first song so i wrote two songs the first week i started writing songs i wrote two before our town and i played one of them for my brother and he said oh that's so-and-so song so I had no consciousness, but I was like, oh, this one's great. Well, yeah, it was, and it wasn't mine. The other one I don't remember, and then Our Town came. So it really was, but it really was my first song. But I had wanted and been praying and hoping and trying to figure out how to get a song for, you know, a decade or more before that. So... Um, but as far as something coming together, you know, it was that song. And I know I, as soon as I wrote that song and it came really, really fast, it, it was a, like a spiritual moment for me. I felt like somebody walked in the room and said, Iris, this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I'd been wondering since I was like 10, what I was going to do. And I was 30, I think when I. Was I 30? No, I was 25. 25 I, think. I wrote yeah. that. Thanks. <laughs> I should just fill you in on your own history here. more often, right? It was 25. Uh, so I didn't think, oh boy, I wrote a hit. It, that never occurred to me. What I thought was, I'm going to be a songwriter. And that seals that deal. And at that point, I didn't know how to play guitar. I, I didn't even know how to play the chords to the song. So I had a lot of figuring out to do. But I was absolutely assured that's what I was going to do. There was nothing that was going to stop me. 
and you know I haven't lost that. Well, go on now and kiss it goodbye, but hold on to your lover, cause your heart's bound to die. Go on now and say goodbye to our town, to our town. Can't you see the sun setting down on our town, on our town? Good night. Sleep up the street beside the pretty brick wall. I bring them flowers about every day, but I just gotta cry when I think what they'd say. If they could see how the sun's setting fast, and just like they say, nothing good ever lasts. Well, go on now and kiss it goodbye, but hold on to your lover, cause your heart's bound to die. And your dream of creating the closing credits of Northern Exposure and CBS finally came true, you know? Well, I, uh, <laughs> it wasn't actually my dream. I'd never seen this show. I was out working <laughs> like all days of the year when Northern Exposure was on. And I, I had heard about it, not seen it. Uh, and then, of course, I saw it when they played my, my song there. And that was, uh, they beautifully placed that, and that has helped me a lot. A lot of people became, between John Prine and Northern Exposure, Nancy Griffith, little boost from Merle Haggard, I, I've managed to survive doing this. You know, I don't play big rooms. I don't sell records. Of course, now nobody sells records. You give your records away. Speaking of the corruption that should have our hair standing up on all of our heads. <laughs> Um, it has mine. You can't see it, but my hair is standing up on the inside. I'm really. You mean you're not wealthy from the 10 million streams that our town has on Spotify right now? Do you know, it would take 120 million streams for me to just pay for what my record has cost me so far. (laughs) million. But the guy, let's see the Apple guy, let's just start with him. And they're the better payers of all. But the fellow who owns Apple, he made something like $99.4 million last year and some $750 million, you know, stock buyout, whatever all their right. 8,000 ways of getting rich are. And that guy can't pay me more than 0.001 cents. We should all just be out of our minds with rage, you know, that we ran to the, the, you know, to vote every year. I did put my check in the box, you know, and those people went up there and they did this to me. The, these are the results of laws, right? These aren't just like weird little odd. Oh, how can it, you know, it's not a coincidence that we can be, um, that I'm and all artists are in this position now of giving their goods away. Well, I think there's this double-edged sword of the beauty of the digital music discovery ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Which I benefit from every day. I could lie to you and say that I don't use Spotify all day, which I do to find a lot of new artists that I play on my radio show or the podcast. And yet my own songwriting, you know, and my touring band, which has probably, I think 15 million streams on Spotify it's can barely get by. Yeah. Right. And that's just like a fact financially, you know, now I think what people aren't talking about is that the playlisting world, right. It's passive listening, right. It's stuff that it's just on in the background. It's it's something that you cursory glance at Um, the people who are really devoted to an Irish dement record will find you and support you. It's just like, I think we have to, manage our expectations a lot more with the massive amount of art that is allowed to be in the world. And it's good that the art is allowed to be in the world, but it's also so much harder to find the people who are already working in the world, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of layers to this, but I want to see the 1% start managing their expectations. You know, we're always asked to manage our expectations, working people. You know, right. oh, you don't deserve a paid sick day. Oh, you don't deserve health care. Right. You know, uh, enough of that. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not anti-streaming. I'm anti, you know, corruption. And it's like, well, it's like, why does the CEO yeah. of the company that is putting the music out need to make a hundred million where we make 30,000? Like it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> can there yeah. be some leveling of the score without being like communism? You know, it's like, there's a tough they balance to walk there. Phone and the brain. Yeah, I mean, they're buying the education system. You see what's going on with DeSantis, and that's going to spread, you know, if you, wow, you know, if you get control of the, the educational system, and you just, uh, I think Hitler figured that out too, didn't he? Like, educate the young, and then they, you won't have protesters in the street. They won't, they won't have heard the stories. They won't know the history enough to counter you. And that's the direction we're headed really fast here. But obviously you're why very... I, thought I had to make this record. I, I probably should stop talking to you and get to work on the next one because there's a lot of work to be done. Well, you talk about obviously education um, and as a way, obviously, to lift people's consciousness. You is it true that you dropped out of high school and, and did, sort yeah. of moved to Midwest? I mean, like that must have been. Uh, obviously a, a whole journey, but like your education came from the places you worked, the, the people you met, right. Which kind of filters into your songs. Well, largely, you know, I, I made it through the 10th grade and then I, I left and I took the exam for the GED and somehow passed that. And then I went later on, uh, some years later, I was probably 23. I went back to school for about a year and a half. I'm glad I did. I was ready and and enjoyed that. In fact, I'm not sure I wouldn't have. I'm not sure I would have started writing had it not been for um, the teacher, my English literature, English 101, um, who really really encouraged me. Prior to that, I didn't know I had any talent. I'd wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, but I didn't ever get encouraged. And I also thought, if you can believe it, I came from such a sexist world that I thought, well, I'm a girl. <laughs> boys are supposed to write it seems crazy now but those messages were really powerful in my world um but yeah I went back and a this English literature teacher was so encouraging she would tell me I had good interesting ideas and I just went with it you know next thing you know mm -hmm. I was writing songs and I had faith that maybe I had something to say and then I couldn't stop and you released a, a record the trackless woods in, in 2015 mm -hmm. um, based on Russian poet Anna. Jedek. No, some people say Akhmatova, and then I've had some Russian people say it's Akhmatova, but then I've heard some of them say Tova too, so I don't know. And my daughter's Russian, and her last name is, her birth name was Chesnikova, and they hmm. most definitely said Ova. So I'm a little not sure myself, but I've decided to go with the Akhmatova. How did you discover the work of that poet and, and want to devote yourself to that? Uh, album that originated with my daughter my husband and I adopted our daughter when she was almost six from Siberia she's almost 24 now so I mean that was the entrance you know just being very interested in her and her culture and trying to understand you know the world that formed her a little bit better and then uh, somebody had given me a book of poetry it was um, a collection of poetry in fact it's sitting on my desk back there a little book um, Russian poets. And um, anyhow, one day I have to have that book for a year, two years, possibly. I opened it up. It was sitting on the piano and I opened it up. And I don't know. I just have had a number of these experiences in my life. And I opened it to Anna's poem, Like a White Stone. And I read through it. I don't remember having any particular feeling about it, but uh, it was kind of like when our time came to me, I felt somebody walked in the room said set that to music and I said I don't know how and they said I'll help you and you know five minutes later I had that song White Stone and that's how that project went like a white stone deep in a drawer
know, I don't, I don't know what these things are, and I don't have some big mystical. I don't need, you know, I don't really even care anymore what the explanations are. But I do know I have things like that happen that feel rock solid, real, and I trust them and I go with them. And so far, I've never been directed to do anything that was harmful to anyone. So I'm like, well, okay, let's write some songs together. You know, whatever, whoever you are. And that's how that proceeded. So I didn't know anything about her. And um, I just locked in and couldn't stop. And I think I took about a year off because I thought, well, this is insane. I have no business setting a Russian poet's songs, you know, to melody. What do I know about that? And I just couldn't stay away. And I kept coming back to it. And 18 songs later, um, there it is, Trackless Woods, which very few people bought. <laughs> I don't care. My husband's favorite record. The ancient gods changed mental things, but left them. A consciousness that smoldered endlessly. It's Have you ever visited Russia? I went there two times. Um, Blake, that was the poet. He's he made a record of Blake songs, and it's amazing and beautiful. Out of print, I'm like it's just one of the best records I've ever heard. Um, I went there two times um, to visit my daughter the first time, and then the second time my husband and I went together to actually adopt her. So we uh, were in Moscow for a little while in uh, the dead of winter. And Siberia, it's hard to say a little town, not a particularly little town, but a pretty beat down mining town in Kamarovo. Um, I would call it like central Siberia, getting yeah, pretty, maybe a couple hundred miles north of the southern border. And, um, you know, a lot of beautiful, amazing people like there are everywhere that were struggling and bearing up under really even then, really difficult circumstances. There are warriors of love everywhere. My daughter had a foster mom who was one of them, and no one will ever know her name, but she had virtually no resources and worked at the an orphanage, devoted her life to that and taking care of little children. My daughter was one of them. And... Um, it's a perfect segue into your song "Warriors of Love" off the new record. Yeah, yeah, um, about her. Yeah, you know, yeah, these figures that I think we know, like uh, John Lewis or, or Rachel Corey, but people uh, like this person who saved your daughter from, um, you know, ruin yeah. in a way are equally well, in her case powerful. You know. You know, uh, I try to, you know, one reason I wrote this record and some of those songs you're referencing, I mean, talking to you and thinking this just, I just felt my spirit brighten up because I needed to dwell on these kinds of people to get me through um, mm -hmm. all of the, um, oh God, I'm trying to think of words that are, you can say in public about the characters we've been dealing with for a long time now, but John Lewis. I mean, somewhere I remember the former president said some god awful like, "How can uh, any living, you know, anybody with any sort of soul or heart or eyes, for that matter, say something like that?" And I remember make a little note to myself: I have to write a song about John Lewis. And I'd been wanting to write a song about Rachel Corey for a long time too. And I remember when she, I think I heard about her on. Um, Oh, I know I did on Democracy Now, Amy Goodman's show, Democracy Now, years ago. And yeah, you know, you just make little notes in your head uh, for things that you feel you need to pursue and do. And then the time became right and they wound up in that song together. John Lewis
sticking up for you know Some their freedom people. and their and and they're just getting disappeared and 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 killed in the street i think it it's hard to believe that something like that can keep happening in this time of you know we assume progress and prosperity and but the world is so vast right that yeah our you know relative safe existence in Iowa City or LA it's so different than what people are going through in different parts of the country and we get these little glimpses through the uh peephole of time you know the internet twitter yeah. you know it's like these little uh glimpses and then all of a sudden it's shut out and we move on to whatever other thing is happening we haven't talked about iran in the news in weeks and months maybe you know it's like we've already forgotten about it you know like what happened to these yeah women? we're well, it's not an accident we've forgotten because, uh, you know, the news, the news cycle works that way. You know, it's again, as you know, it's also geared towards profit. It's it's not profitable to stay with something until it gets corrected or addressed, you know. And uh, like you were talking about the women of Iran. I mean, we got to step up for these folks. You know, we may not be able to go over there change their situation but we can carry the mission and carry the commitment to righteousness you know to just to cut to the chase and justice we can carry that in you know endless ways you know vera with my daughter that's how she did it i'm doing it through my songs you're doing it through your work and your band and whatever things other things in your life you're involved in it's so easy to get discouraged and feel like that doesn't matter. I do it all the time. I was discouraged yesterday. I'm like, throw my record out the window. I can't change. You know, I can't solve the big problems. <laughs> I get like that. But all of us together can maybe not be able to turn around, but we can keep it from falling down. But I think the funny thing also is that many people uh, may only know you initially from something like In Spite of Ourselves with John, yeah. which is such a such a lighthearted kind of uh little smirk of a song where <laughs> talking about you know him getting turned on by sniffing your undies right yeah and we're like yeah that's iris dement that's what i know her from she's the the lady talking about undies with john prime <laughs> this is true <laughs> that's her that's that's what i know her from <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't see that one coming. Um, John, <laughs> it's a also great wrote, song. <laughs> John also wrote Sam Stone, you know, um, which I'm sure you know. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, we change. I remember when that call came through. Um, John had just survived cancer. Mm-hmm. John told me he never thought he was he never thought he was going to die, but a lot of the rest of us, you know, were concerned and for good reason. And I don't know how much you know, but he lost half his neck and he right. was possibly never going to sing again and so forth. But anyhow, he um, he called me after that and asked me if I would um, record that song with him that he had just written. And I'm just, of course, you know, it was like John back from the dead. I I would always say yes to John, but especially a back from the dead John. It's like, right. and he kept saying, I think you share the lyrics. I think you share the lyrics. I'm like, John, I'll sing anything with you. She thinks all my jokes are corny. Convict movies make her horny. She likes ketchup on her scrambled eggs. Swears like a sailor when she shaves her legs. She takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I'm never gonna let her go. Got more balls than a big brass monkey. It's a whacked out weirdo and a love bug junkie. Sly as a fox, crazy as a loon. Payday comes and he's a howling at the moon. But he's my baby. I don't mean. 
never gonna let him go. In spite of ourselves. His wife Fiona got on the phone. You have to let me fax you. That was fax days. <laughs> and I didn't, I'll be honest, I paused. I, I didn't like see my future holding like lyrics like that. <laughs> like, are you real? Is this for real? Um, but we did it, and I would have not done that song with anybody but John. And then we went out and sang it, I don't know how many hundred times, and I, it, it's been great. I'm, I'm over that hurdle. <sighs> how did you first how did you first meet him or how how did he first encounter your work well when i was making my first record um my friend jim rooney produced it who co-produced this one he was one of counting me there were four of us on this because it was never going to be a record i just kept going in to record songs with people right and the next thing you know it's like wow i got something that's looking like a record so uh, he and I did Infamous Angel together and he had a demo of it and he knew John and nobody knew me. I had never even done a show. I had I'd yet I had only stood up and sang like in front of like open mic people, you know, and sang mm-hmm. like songs. So I had this record. So anyhow, he he knew John. So he asked John if he'd listen to the demo and if he liked it, would he say something? And so that's how that all started. John liked it. He cried into his pork chops and wrote a story about crying into his pork chops. And it did me a world of good. A lot of people listened to my record because he told them to. So, and then we continued um, almost immediately. He started taking me out to open for him. And I worked with John until, you know, to the end. I'd always, I did a lot of tours with him. We recorded, I don't know, half dozen duets sang him every night and I I would go out and open for him even those last years a couple times a year and and uh yeah that was that was a great loss to everyone I mean you've been able to team up with some legendary folks obviously you know Steve Earl who I was able to talk to in this show as well Amy Lou Harris you co-wrote a song with Merle Haggard do you feel like your songwriting brain is different when you are collaborating with someone versus writing for yourself yeah, I've done almost no collaboration. This is the first record. Um, you know, my first husband, and I, who's not musical at all, he 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 says I'm not putting words in his mouth. You know, we did the kind of thing in the car. You know, we might come up with a title together, and I've just not really co-written. And the song I did with Merle, uh, I was out working with him, touring with him. I still can't quite believe it. He asked me to play the piano for him in The Strangers. So I went out in the and did that for six or eight weeks, I guess. But while we were out there, I had a song, uh, this kind of happy with you, but I didn't feel it was finished. And I came in on the bus and asked him if he would like to help me. He instantly had a bridge. So I have, I think what I'm coming around to saying is I never had to sit in a room, you know, uh-huh. figure this out. Um but these this record is different though. I did co-write two songs with Pieta, Pieta Brown. And those were um more like maybe the traditional kind of co-writing that when we think of co-writing, we think of, I don't know. I mean, is there any traditional co-writing? But yeah, we we were equally, you know, involved in both of those songs. So um The Sacred Now being one that you wrote with yep, her. Yep, and I won't ask you why. Yeah, we definitely we did those together, and I don't think I've ever. I think that's it. I've done. I haven't co-written uh, apart from that. So back to your question, I um I don't know what it is. I you said at the beginning of the show, you know, the family of fourteen, and I think there's something in there for me. Like I'm just I've done my sharing here. <laughs> yeah, I saw. I just felt from the get-go with my songs want to be my songs i want this to be something that's me 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 i traveled high i traveled low and there was no place that i didn't go looking for this kind of happy with you I had love it was right 
You feel like there was a show, uh, a moment in time where you had like your biggest rock star moment, like the biggest audience, the most intense show that you can ever remember. We were like, I can't believe I'm here. A show show? Um, Well, uh, this wasn't actually my audience, but I'll take it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was Glastonbury. And I the Glastonbury Festival and I think it was 96 right around in there I mean, it was just a sea of people as far as I could see which really honestly that didn't do anything for me I, I would rather see some you know a handful of people I can make out rather than the sea of people but the high of that was Johnny Cash went on after me and I stood in the wings I still can't believe that happened mm. I stood like 10 feet away and I watched Johnny Cash and June Carter mm. do their show and uh, you know snapped photos um you know I mean I, I don't know your history with Johnny Cash but uh, I mean I was a kid and Johnny Cash he was just bigger than life and really touched me deeply and there he was and I had played there I didn't make any sense so, I mean, again, that was not my audience. I'm sure a handful of folks were there to see me, but um, that was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's epic. But other than that, it could be any night. It could be a room. I've been in rooms with a spattering of people. I walk out and be like, oh, damn, nobody can. And had the most amazing time and felt mm-hmm. like the universe just couldn't have gone on without that evening. That happens, and so I just stay ready for that and at any time. Someday when I draw my final breath, I'm gonna know that I had the best. Cause I had this kind of Big thanks to Iris Dement for getting on the line with me. You can go to irisdement.com for her tour dates and her newest record, Working on a World, which just came out. Uh, she'll be playing starting uh, in March in uh, Louisiana and Texas in Nebraska, uh, Missouri, all over the place. So please check out her show. And uh, if you're curious what my group, Dust Bowl Revival, is up to, well, we're going to be going to the East Coast at the end of March, starting March 22nd in Pittsburgh, a rare show over there at Thunderbird Music Hall. And then we'll be heading to Lancaster, PA, and Washington, D.C. at the Hamilton, March 24th, playing in Annapolis, Maryland at Ramshead, and finishing up at Ardmore Music Hall in Philadelphia on the 26th. A lot of fun's coming your way. Please check it out, DustBowlRevival.com. As you might have heard from previous weeks, yes, I have a new radio show. 88.5 FM LA, the SoCal Sound, has my show, The Sway Out West Radio Hour, every Saturday at 7 a.m., or you can listen anytime on the archive page. If you like this show, you can donate. The Red Circle Donations app is on the iTunes text page. Please check that out. And you can subscribe on our website, theshowontheroad.com. As always, The Show on the Road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, stay creative, and we'll see you on the trail.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.